Chapter 7 of The Memoirs of Barry Lyndon, Esquire, by William Makepeace Thackeray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 7 Barry leads a garrison life, and finds many friends there. After the war, our regiment was garrisoned in the capital, the least dull, perhaps, of all the towns in Prussia, but that does not say much for its gaiety. Our service, which was always severe, still left many hours of the day disengaged, in which we might take our pleasure, had we the means of paying for the same. Many of our mess got leave to work in trades, but I had been brought up to none, and besides my honour forbade me, for, as a gentleman, I could not soil my fingers by a manual occupation. But our pay was barely enough to keep us from starving, and as I have always been fond of pleasure, and as the position in which we now were, in the midst of the capital, prevented us from resorting to those means of levying contributions, which are always pretty feasible in wartime, I was obliged to adopt the only means left me of providing for my expenses, and in a word became the ordonnance, or confidential military gentleman, of my captain. I spurned the office four years previously, when it was made to me in the English service, but the position is very different in a foreign country. Besides, to tell the truth, after five years in the ranks, a man's pride will submit to many rebuffs which would be intolerable to him in an independent condition. The captain was a young man, and had distinguished himself during the war, or he would never have been advanced to rank so early. He was, moreover, the nephew and heir of the minister of police, Monsieur de Potsdorf, a relationship which no doubt aided in the young gentleman's promotion. Captain de Potsdorf was a severe officer enough on parade or in barracks, but he was a person easily led by flattery. I won his heart in the first place by my manner of tying my hair in queue. Indeed, it was more neatly dressed than that of any man in the regiment, and subsequently gained his confidence by a thousand little arts and compliments which as a gentleman myself I knew how to employ. He was a man of pleasure, which he pursued more openly than most men in the stern court of the king. He was generous and careless with his purse, and he had a great affection for Rhine wine. In all which qualities I sincerely sympathized with him, and from which I, of course, had my profit. He was disliked in the regiment, because he was supposed to have two intimate relations with his uncle, the police minister, to whom, it was hinted, he carried the news of the corps. Before long I had ingratiated myself considerably with my officer, and knew most of his affairs. Thus I was relieved from many drills and parades, which would otherwise have fallen to my lot, and came in for a number of perquisites which enabled me to support a genteel figure, and to appear with some éclat in a certain, though it must be confessed, very humble, society in Berlin. Among the ladies I was always in a special favourite, and was so polished with my behaviour amongst them, that they could not understand how I should have obtained my frightful nickname of the Black Devil in the regiment. <laughs> he is not so black as he is painted, I laughingly would say, and most of the ladies agreed that the private was quite as well-bred as the captain, 
as indeed how should it be otherwise considering my education and birth when i was sufficiently ingratiated with him i asked leave to address a letter to my poor mother in ireland to whom i had not given any news of myself for many many years for the letters of foreign soldiers were never admitted to the post for fear of appeals or disturbances on the part of their parents abroad my captain agreed to find means to forward the letter and as i knew that he would open it i took care to give it him unsealed thus showing my confidence in him but the letter was as you may imagine written so that the writer should come to no harm were it intercepted i begged my honoured mother's forgiveness for having fled from her i said that my extravagance and folly in my own country i knew rendered my return thither impossible but that she would at least be glad to know that i was well and happy in the service of the greatest monarch in the world and that the soldier's life was most agreeable to me and i added that i had found a kind protector and patron who i hoped would some day provide for me as i knew was out of her power to do i offered remembrances to all the girls at castle brady naming them from biddy to becky downwards and signed myself as in truth i was her affectionate son in captain potsdorf's company of the bulevish regiment of foot in garrison at berlin also i told her a pleasant story about the king kicking the chancellor and three judges downstairs as he had done one day when i was on guard at potsdam and said i hoped for another war soon when i might rise to be an officer in fact you might have imagined my letter to be that of the happiest fellow in the world and i was not on this head at all sorry to mislead my kind parent i was sure my letter was read for captain potsdorf began asking me some days afterwards about my family and i told him the circumstances pretty truly all things considered i was a cadet of a good family but my mother was almost ruined and had barely enough to support her eight daughters whom i named i had been to study for the law at dublin where i had got into debt and bad company had killed a man in a duel and would be hanged or imprisoned by his powerful friends if i returned i had enlisted in the english service where an opportunity for escape presented itself to me such as i could not resist and hereupon i told the story of mr fakenham of fakenham in such a way as made my patron to be convulsed with laughter and he told me afterwards that he had repeated the story at madame de camaquet's evening assembly where all the world was anxious to have a sight of the young englander was the british ambassador there i asked in a tone of the greatest alarm and added for heaven's sake sir do not tell my name to him or he might ask to have me delivered up and i have no fancy to go be hanged in my dear native country potsdorf laughing said he would take care that i should remain where i was on which i swore eternal gratitude to him some days afterwards and with rather a grave face he said to me redmond i have been talking to our colonel about you and as i wondered that a fellow of your courage and talents had not been advanced during the war the general said they had had their eye upon you that you were a gallant soldier and evidently come of a good stock and no man in the regiment had had less fault found with him but that no man merited promotion less you were idle 
dissolute and unprincipled you had done a deal of harm to the men and for all your talents and bravery he was sure you would come to no good sir said i quite astonished that any mortal man should have formed such an opinion of me i hope general bulow is mistaken regarding my character i have fallen into bad company it is true but i have only done as other soldiers have done and above all i have never had a kind friend or protector before to whom i might show that i was worthy of better things the general may say i am a ruined lad and send me to the devil but be sure of this i would go to the devil to serve you this speech i saw pleased my patron very much and as i was discreet and useful in a thousand delicate ways to him he soon came to have a sincere attachment for me one day or rather night when he was tete-a-tete with the lady of the tabaxrat von doza for instance i but there's no use in telling affairs which concern nobody now four months after my letter to my mother i got under cover to the captain a reply which created in my mind a yearning after home and a melancholy which i cannot describe i had not seen the dear soul's writing for five years all the old days and the fresh happy sunshine of the old green fields in ireland and her love and my uncle and phil purcell and everything that i had done and thought came back to me as i read the letter and when i was alone i cried over it as i hadn't done since the day when nora jilted me i took care not to show my feelings to the regiment or my captain but that night when i was to have taken tea at the garden-house outside brandenburg gate with fraulein lotkin the tabaks ratin's gentlewoman of company i somehow had not the courage to go but begged to be excused and went early to bed in barracks out of which i went and came now almost as i willed and passed a long night weeping and thinking about dear ireland next day my spirits rose again and i got a ten-guinea bill cashed which my mother sent in the letter and gave a handsome treat to some of my acquaintance the poor soul's letter was blotted all over with tears full of texts and written in the wildest incoherent way she said she was delighted to think i was under a protestant prince though she feared he was not in the right way that right way she said she had the blessing to find under the guidance of the reverend joshua jowls whom she sat under she said he was a precious chosen vessel a sweet ointment and a precious box of spikenard and made use of a great number more phrases that i could not understand but one thing was clear in the midst of all the jargon that the good soul loved her son still and thought and prayed day and night for her wild redmond has it not come across many a poor fellow in a solitary night's watch or in sorrow sickness or captivity that at that very minute most likely his mother is praying for him i often have these thoughts but they are none of the gayest and it's quite well that they don't come to you in company for where would be a set of jolly fellows then as mute as undertakers at a funeral i promise you i drank my mother's health that night in a bumper and lived like a gentleman whilst the money lasted she pinched herself to give it me as she told me afterwards 
and Mr. Jowles was very wroth with her. Although the good soul's money was very quickly spent, I was not long in getting more, for I had a hundred ways of getting it, and became a universal favorite with the captain and his friends. Now it was Madame Vondosa who gave me a Frederick d'Or for bringing her a bouquet or a letter from the captain. Now it was, on the contrary, the old privy councillor who treated me with a bottle of Rhenish, and slipped into my hand a dollar or two, in order that I might give him some information regarding the liaison between my captain and his lady. But though I was not such a fool as not to take his money, you may be sure I was not dishonorable enough to betray my benefactor. And he got very little out of me. When the captain and the lady fell out, he began to pay his addresses to the rich daughter of the Dutch minister. I don't know how many letters and guineas the unfortunate Tabax Ratine handed over to me that I might get her lover back again, but such returns are rare in love, and the captain used only to laugh at her stale sighs and entreaties. In the house of Mynheer von Huldensack I made myself so pleasant to high and low that I came to be quite intimate there, and got the knowledge of a state secret or two, which surprised and pleased my captain very much. These little hints he carried to his uncle, the minister of police, who, no doubt, made his advantage of them, and thus I began to be received quite in a confidential light by the Potsdorf family, and became a mere nominal soldier, being allowed to appear in plain clothes, which were, I warrant you, of a neat fashion, and to enjoy myself in a hundred ways which the poor fellows my comrades envied. As for the sergeants, they were as civil to me as to an officer. It was as much as their stripes were worth to offend a person who had the ear of the minister's nephew. There was in my company a young fellow by the name of Kurtz, who was six feet high in spite of his name, and whose life I had saved in some affair of the war. What does this lad do after I had recounted to him one of my adventures but to call me a spy and informer? and beg me not to call him do any more, as is the fashion with young men when they are very intimate. I had nothing for it but to call him out. But I owed him no grudge. I disarmed him in a twinkling, and as I sent his sword flying over his head, said to him, Kurtz, did you ever know a man guilty of a mean action who can do as I do now? This silenced the rest of the grumblers, and no man ever sneered at me after that. No man can suppose that to a person of my fashion the waiting in antechambers, the conversation of footmen and hangers-on, was pleasant. But it was not more degrading than the barrack-room, of which I need not say I was heartily sick. My protestations of liking for the army were all intended to throw dust into the eyes of my employer. I sighed to be out of slavery. I knew I was born to make a figure in the world. Had I been one of the nicer garrison, I would have cut my way to freedom by the side of the gallant Frenchman. But here I had only artifice to enable me to attain my end, and was not I justified in employing it? My plan was this. I may make myself so necessary to Monsieur de Potsdorf that he will obtain my freedom. Once free with my fine person and good family, I will do what ten thousand Irish gentlemen have done before, and will marry a lady of fortune and condition. 
and the proof that I was, if not disinterested, at least actuated by a noble ambition, is this. There was a fat grocer's widow in Berlin with six hundred dollars of rent and a good business, who gave me to understand that she would purchase my discharge if I would marry her. But I frankly told her that I was not made to be a grocer, and thus absolutely flung away a chance of freedom which she offered me. And I was grateful to my employers, more grateful than they to me. The captain was in debt, and had dealings with the Jews, to whom he gave notes of hand payable on his uncle's death. The old Herr von Potzdorf, seeing the confidence his nephew had in me, offered to bribe me to know what the young man's affairs really were, but what did I do? I informed Monsieur George von Potzdorf of the fact, and we made out in concert a list of little debts so moderate that they actually appeased the old uncle instead of irritating, and he paid them, being glad to get off so cheap. And a pretty return I got for this fidelity. One morning, the old gentleman being closeted with his nephew, he used to come to get any news stirring as to what the young officers of the regiment were doing, whether this or that gambled, who intrigued and with whom, and who was at the redotto on such a night, who was in debt and what not, for the king liked to know the business of every officer in his army, I was sent with a letter to the Marquis d'Argent, that afterwards married Mademoiselle Cauchois, the actress, and meeting the Marquis at a few paces off in the street, gave my message and returned to the captain's lodging. He and his worthy uncle were making my unworthy self the subject of conversation. He is noble, said the captain. Bah, replied the uncle, whom I could have throttled for his insolence. All the beggarly Irish who ever enlisted tell the same story. He was kidnapped by Galgenstein, resumed the other. A kidnapped deserter, said Monsieur Potsdorf. La belle affaire. Well, I promised the lad that I would ask for his discharge, and I am sure you can make him useful. You have asked his discharge, answered the elder, laughing. <laughs> bon Dieu, you are a model of probity. You'll never succeed to my place, George, if you are no wiser than you are just now. Make the fellow as useful to you as you please. He has a good manner and a frank countenance. He can lie with an assurance that I never saw surpassed, and fight, you say, on a pinch. The scoundrel does not want for good qualities. But he is vain, a spendthrift, and a bavard. As long as you have the regiment in terrorum over him, you can do as you like with him. Once let him loose, and the lad is likely to give you the slip. Keep on promising him. Promise to make him a general if you like. What the deuce do I care? There are spies enough to be had in this town without him. It was thus that the services I rendered to Monsieur Potsdorf were qualified by that ungrateful old gentleman. And I stole away from the room extremely troubled in spirit, to think that another of my fond dreams was thus dispelled, and that my thoughts of getting out of the army, by being useful to the captain, were entirely vain. For some time my despair was such that I thought of marrying the widow. But the marriages of privates are never allowed without the direct permission of the king, 
and it was a matter of very great doubt whether his majesty would allow a young fellow of twenty-two the handsomest man in the army to be coupled to a pimple-faced old woman of sixty who was quite beyond the age when her marriage would be likely to multiply the subjects of his majesty this hope of liberty was therefore vain nor could i hope to purchase my discharge unless any charitable soul would lend me a large sum of money for though i made a good deal as i have said yet i have always through life an incorrigible knack of spending and such is my generosity of disposition have been in debt ever since i was born my captain the sly rascal gave me a very different version of his conversation with his uncle to that which i knew to be the true one and said smilingly to me redmond i have spoken to the minister regarding thy services and thy fortune is made footnote the service about which mr berry here speaks has and we suspect purposely been described by him in very dubious terms it is most probable that he was employed to wait at the table of strangers in berlin and to bring to the police minister any news concerning them which might at all interest the government the great frederick never received a guest without taking these hospitable precautions and as for the duels which mr berry fights may we be allowed to hint a doubt as to a great number of these combats it will be observed in one or two other parts of his memoirs that whenever he is at an awkward pass or does what the world does not usually consider respectable a duel in which he is victorious is sure to ensue from which he argues that he is a man of undoubted honour we shall get thee out of the army appoint thee to a police bureau and procure for thee an inspectorship of customs and in fine allow thee to move in a better sphere than that in which fortune has hitherto placed thee although i did not believe a word of this speech i affected to be very much moved by it and of course swore eternal gratitude to the captain for his kindness to the poor irish castaway your service at the dutch ministers has pleased me very well there is another occasion on which you may make yourself useful to us and if you succeed depend on it your reward will be secure what is the service sir said i i will do anything for so kind a master there is lately come to berlin said the captain a gentleman in the service of the empress queen who calls himself the chevalier de balibarie and wears the red ribbon and star of the pope's order of the spur he speaks italian or french indifferently but we have some reason to fancy that this monsieur de balibarie is a native of your country of ireland did you ever hear such a name as balibarie in ireland balibarie balibar a sudden thought flashed across me no sir said i i never heard the name you must go into his service of course you will not know a word of english and if the chevalier asks as to the particularity of your accent say you are a hungarian the servant who came with him will be turned away to-day and the person to whom he has applied for a faithful fellow will recommend you you are a hungarian you served in the seven years war you left the army on account of weakness of the loins 
you served Monsieur de Kellenberg two years. He is now with the army in Silesia, but there is your certificate signed by him. You afterwards lived with Dr. Mopsius, who will give you a character if need be, and the landlord of the Star will, of course, certify that you are an honest fellow, but his certificate goes for nothing. As for the rest of your story, you can fashion that as you will, and make it as romantic or as ludicrous as your fancy dictates. Try, however, to win the Chevalier's confidence by provoking his compassion. He gambles a great deal, and wins. Do you know the cards well? Only a very little, as soldiers do. Oh, I had thought you more expert. You must find out if the Chevalier cheats. If he does, we have him. He sees the English and Austrian envoys continually, and the young men of either ministry sup repeatedly at his house. Find out what they talk of, for how much each plays, especially if any of them play on parole. If you can read his private letters, of course you will, though about those which go to the post you need not trouble yourself. We look at them there. But never see him write a note without finding out to whom it goes, and by what channel or messenger. He sleeps with the keys of his dispatch-box on a string round his neck. Twenty Fredericks if you get an impression of the keys. You will, of course, go in plain clothes. You had best brush the powder out of your hair and tie it with a ribbon simply. Your moustache, of course, you must shave off. With these instructions, and a very small gratuity, the captain left me. When I saw him again, he was amused at the change in my appearance. I had, not without a pang, for they were as black as jet and curved elegantly, shaved off my moustaches, had removed the odious grease and flour which I always abominated out of my hair, and had mounted a demure French coat, black satin breeches, and a maroon plush waistcoat, and a hat without a cockade. I looked as meek and humble as any servant out of place could possibly appear, and I think not my own regiment, which was now at the review at Potsdam, would have known me. Thus accoutred I went to the Star Hotel, where this stranger was, my heart beating with anxiety, and something telling me that this Chevalier de Ballybarry was no other than Barry of Ballybarry, my father's eldest brother, who had given up his estate in consequence of his obstinate adherence to the Romish superstition. Before I went to present myself, I went to look, in the remise, at his carriage. Had he the Barry arms? Yes, there they were. Argent, a bend jewels, with four escallops of the field. The ancient coat of my house! They were painted in a shield about as big as my hat on a smart chariot handsomely gilded, surmounted with a coronet, and supported by eight or nine cupids, cornucopias, and flower-baskets, according to the queer, heraldic fashion of those days. It must be he! I felt quite faint as I went up the stairs. I was going to present myself before my uncle in the character of a servant. You are the young man whom Monsieur de Sebach recommended? I bowed and handed him a letter from that gentleman, with which my captain had taken care to provide me. As he looked at it, I had leisure to examine him. My uncle was a man of sixty years of age, 
dressed superbly in a coat and breeches of apricot-coloured velvet, a white satin waistcoat embroidered with gold like the coat. Across his breast went the purple ribbon of his order of the spur, and the star of the order, an enormous one, sparkled on his breast. He had rings on all his fingers, a couple watches in his fobs, a rich diamond solitaire in the black ribbon around his neck, and fastened to the bag of his wig. His ruffles and frills were decorated with a profusion of the richest lace. He had pink silk stockings rolled over one knee and tied with gold garters, and enormous diamond buckles to his red-heeled shoes. A sword mounted in gold in a white fish-skin scabbard, and a hat richly laced and lined with white feathers, which were lying on a table beside him, complemented the costume of this splendid gentleman. In height he was about my size, that is, six feet and half an inch. His cast of features singularly like mine, and extremely distingué. One of his eyes was closed with a black patch, however. He wore a little white and red paint, by no means an unusual ornament in those days, and a pair of moustaches, which fell over his lip and hid a mouth that I afterwards found had rather a disagreeable expression. When his beard was removed, his upper teeth appeared to project very much, and his countenance wore a ghastly fixed smile, by no means pleasant. It was very imprudent of me, but when I saw the splendor of his appearance, the nobleness of his manner, I felt it impossible to keep disguise with him. And when he said, Ah, you are a Hungarian, I see, I could hold no longer. Sir, said I, I am an Irishman, and my name is Redmond Barry of Ballyberry. As I spoke, I burst into tears. I can't tell why. But I had seen none of my kith or kin for six years, and my heart longed for someone. End of chapter 7